from the team that brought you the award-winning show Retro Replay and the Emmy-nominated comedy series Con Man comes a new idea just crazy enough to be good. Introducing Couch Soup. I know, I know, you're probably wondering, what is Couch Soup? Well, Couch Soup is content for your hungry nerd soul. Daily articles from fans, not pundits. Weekly podcasts that contain a multiverse of opinions on all things pop culture. Exclusive videos and weekly live streams where we laugh, scream, and sometimes have technical difficulties. All created by folks like you, the gamers, the film nerds, the TV bingers, comic book lovers, bookworms, and pop culture enthusiasts, all in one giant bowl of beautiful, disgusting, soupy goodness at CouchSoup.com. All Things Alice. This podcast will explore the cultural phenomenon of Alice in Wonderland as artistic landmark and global symbol of inspiration and imagination. I'm your host, Frank Bedore, the author of the Looking Glass Wars trilogy. Let's explore what is it about Alice? Welcome back to the show, everybody. This week, we're joined once again by a very good friend of mine and a super talented writer, Curtis Clark, my collaborator on Crossfire and Underfire. We're going to dive into his start in Hollywood and specifically one of the scripts that he wrote that launched his career and all things Alice. Hey, Curtis, welcome back. I got to say that uh, our last conversation was so stellar that I really wanted to have you back. And, and I appreciate you carving out some time between uh, being a writer and to jump off on that, you um, wrote a script called Run, which you've written a lot of scripts and we've all written a lot that's still in a drawer somewhere, thank God. But um, Run was a, uh, was a really great calling card for you. Why don't you tell um, you know, listeners what that script, you know, what, how that worked for you and why it was... Um, why it was kind of a door opener. So I was always looking for somebody when I was young to try to give me some some guideposts when it comes to writing. That's why part of the reason why I wrote that blog post was for you was like if a young writer happens along it, they can see sort of like what happened in my career. So I'll tell it from that perspective of like starting out. I had written some stuff that wasn't great. Um, I'd written some stuff that was okay. I'd gotten some jobs and I just worked my butt off, but I didn't have that great sample. And I was working with this guy named Parent Childs. Um, he was a, a, a producer and I had this TV show that I wrote for him. I wrote with him or I wrote it, but we created it together called uh, City of Gods. I think you read that. It was the modern retelling. Of I did. It was terrific. It was dense though. And it, it was really, really worked for me. Like if I was to look at it now, I'd be like, oh my God. It was but long. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was long and it, you know, and it wasn't great, but it was, it was the idea was there. Like the passion and, and the possibility and all that was there. The execution wasn't very good. And I was getting by on work ethic and passion and things like that, and then just failing, right? So I needed something that was professional. That's what I really needed. And so that script became my, my I needed a business card. I was like, I, this has to tick all of the boxes. So I read as many science fiction features as I could find. I read, you know, at that time it was like Inception. And I was reading this, there was this spec called Agent Ox that I read and a bunch of other ones. And I was like, this is going to look exactly like those, those do. That's what I did on the page. And sure enough, I mean, that ended up being the, the script that got me my rep. That is the script that got me working with some larger people out here. So I started my partnership with the actor Oded Fair when we did some television stuff together. I think you met him at a con one time. Mm. He's a great guy. He's like one of the nicest people that I've ever met in Hollywood. He's really creative and had a great time with him. Never would have happened had I not written this particular script. The funny thing about it is it's never gone to buyers. So it's still like around. I polished it not that long ago and cut like 20 pages out of it because I'm better technically now. Um, but it was a very simple idea. It was about two androids on the run with their seven-year-old daughter who doesn't know her parents aren't human. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's the movie. It's right. a, fa- it's a movie about, you know, it's, it's sci-fi, but it's a family movie. You mm-hmm. know, it's a four-quadrant film. It's PG-13. It works internationally, yada, yada, yada. Um, and I, had, I got close with it one time. One time it... Um, it, it, uh, a person who had a deal at Fox wanted Fox to buy it for them, but there was a competing project. Um, anyways, I got kind of off, off kilter there for a second, but basically I took like six months and I did all the things you're supposed to do. 
correctly this time. I did them all in order. I broke it all correctly. I did every single step through every single screenwriting book that I could find. And then after that, I never read those books ever again because mm -hmm. I took what I wanted to take from them and I made it my own. And that was what that script was. And it's still a good sample, but I've moved beyond it in terms of being a writer. Right, right, right. And and you've also had to learn that instead of writing all these things on spec, you know, yeah. the art of pitching. So you can yeah. take that next idea now that you have some doors to knock on and some folks to talk to. And that's what I've been doing in the last couple of years. I mean, it's I spec that that crime drama because I want to direct it and I want to make it as an independent. But otherwise, I've pretty much only been pitching, which to fold back into you, when I first became a writer, I didn't even think about that. Like, I'm not a performer. And then I go to uh, San Diego Comic-Con with you, and I'm watching you drop into this, like, well-polished pitch with strangers who are just walking up to your booth, and you are just, in 15 seconds, they know what the world is. And I was like, well, shit. Now I can learn how to do that. <laughs> and I, if you have a background in acting and performing, I do not. And so when we do pitches now, when I, I pitched, um, this will bring us up to speed now a little bit, I was pitching Amazon the day the strike happened. Okay. And so what we were doing it over Zoom. And so I would prefer, just my personality, to go in a room and shoot the shit like you and I are now. Find something, riff back and forth, get excited, get the notes, get out and go to town. That's not the way it is anymore. Yeah. And so you got to get in there. And before you get in the room, you'd feel the energy in the room. You try to get them asking you questions. Now it's over Zoom. They're on mute. They're going to sit there for 30 minutes, nod their head, and you're going to hope they're not reading their email. It sucks. Yeah. But you have to do it. Yeah, it's a lot harder. It's a lot harder to connect personally because of the of the with the lack of uh close you know proximity to each other and feeling that 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 transference of energy that goes back and forth in a pitch and especially when it starts going well and yeah. you're building that kind of momentum um it's well, i had the last two pitches were the, the exact opposite the one with fox great they asked a bunch of questions afterwards we still don't know maybe they want to buy it but the strike has happened the amazon one dead on arrival it right. was like, it was like go, one, cause the strike and two, cause it just wasn't going to be for them, but it was painful. Cause I had to go through another, you know, 15, 20 minutes of this going like, they're not going to buy this shit. When you know, it's not working. And you know, on the day of the strike, you can't get any unluckier than like why they even kept that meeting is kind of surprising, but uh, every meeting and every situation is so unique and different and it's not knowable. It's like, you know, you said, but being an actor and walking into a room and they said, oh, they want some middle-aged white guy. Okay, well, there's 15 people in there that can play that part. Why am I going to be the separate one, different? Yeah, and it's also that thing where, you you know, you the, the mandates that they send out, like my reps will send me, you know, hey, they're looking for this, this, and that. By the time you get to them, they don't want that shit anymore. No, they bought it the day that they put yeah. it out there. Exactly. Yeah. And so, honestly, like where I'm at now with the way that I do development I don't even think about the market. You can't time the market. You're not going to be there when the market wants what it wants right now anyways. And right. so you're almost better off trying to develop what's not in the marketplace or what the market's not buying. Because by the time you're ready, I mean, literally could be a year or two from when you conceive this thing through packaging and all of that, who knows what they're going to want? Like yeah. everybody last buying season wanted Ted Lasso, right? Well, guess what? A bazillion Ted Lasso's hit the market. So if you're going with Ted Lasso next year, you're dead. Like it's just not going to happen. But in... Five years, it might be perfect timing. So, you know, your script run could fall right into place. It's not knowable. Um, you know, I've been working on this project, the Juliet at Warner Brothers for, for so many years. I'm embarrassed to say how many. That's and Alfred we, Bester, right? Yeah. I know that. I read it. Yeah. Yeah. We keep trying to, we keep reinventing it to try and catch the zeitgeist because we kept missing the curve. We're too late to the story and the story and that the, the genre passes us by. That happened to me with the World War II story that I sold to Paramount when I first started. And there were no World War II movies and nobody was talking about World War II movies. And they said, oh, this is really a fresh, great idea. It was, you know, Dirty Dozen on Skis based on this true story, but we didn't get the story right and then all these World War II movies. Ryan, Band of Brothers. Yeah, yeah, one yeah. after another. And by the time they got around to reading the script after the fourth polish, they went, eh, we're past it. So I have a, I have a project right now that is, is a deep cover espionage story set within the alt-right. So it's oh. already like tough subject matter, right? And it's a limited series because it's a limited series. The script is great. Like it's, it's probably the best writing I've ever done. And the showrunners, Ethan and Cy, the guys I mentioned before, I've said like, this is a really, really good writing sample. It hasn't left the shelf because the timing 
is not good because January 6th is still in everybody's yeah. mindset and all that kind of stuff. It's too and close. So, it's too close. But it's, afterwards. But the thing is, by the time it got made, would be two or three years from now. Would be, so, I, you know, who knows? It's, yeah. it's, it's so tough that way. Yeah. Um, and for me, it's I, the, the feeling with them is that it's such a strong sample that, like, even if it doesn't sell, it's going to do good things for me. Well, I don't want to hear that when we're not able to send the script out. Yeah. So you're telling me I got this this possible golden ticket in this drawer. But, hey, just just keep it in your wallet for a little bit longer, pal. Well, isn't that why you're writing a graphic novel? Tell me what you're uh, what you're working on. What is it? Well, so the pivot is because of how frustrated Hollywood is right now and the strike. So there's two things that I'm working on right now. One is this graphic novel called Enders that I co-created with this guy named Nathan Reed. And it's uh, it's essentially about contract killers for the dead. Um, it's about this guy named Ender Endless. And um, he's given a second chance. And what his job is after he dies, he's given a second chance by death, which is sort of uh, just an entity. It's not a person. And it's not good or bad. Death is just like a construct. And so they go around and they end wayward souls, people whose souls refuse to leave Earth because... Um, they were wronged. They were, they were, their lives were unjustly taken or whatever. So the job of the ender is to either satisfy the wayward soul by being possessed by it, taking them and being indebted by them and empowered. And then they go and they, they, they take care of the guy who, who unjustly killed them. Or if that soul festers too long on earth, then they will manifest in flesh as monsters, like a horse monster, oh, whatever they can find. Wow. And that way. That's and cool. So they're, they're ticking time bombs. These, these, these wayward souls are. And the whole point is like, they got to keep death's books clean. You know, he doesn't care that doesn't she doesn't care if they go up or down river, whatever it is, just so long as there's not too many of them on Earth, because then a walking or waking a living death could happen where, you know, the dead rise, that kind of thing. So the story's not about a zombie apocalypse. It's just that's the looming that's right. the white walkers of the story. And so it, it follows Ender Endless and the discovery of like who he was because he has no memories in his life. I think I did you look at it or no? I, I started to. I haven't had a chance to uh, finish it, which is why I'm not commenting because I just Jeez. started it. Thanks for setting it up, Frank. Yeah, well, I, um, I did start it. This is, you know, I'm very busy. I'm not going to give you my um, calling card after this. Uh... <laughs> I, I would throw it away anyway. No. Um, but anyway, so it's, it's you know, it's it's horror. It's got, the, it's. I love the tone of comic books because you get action and you get quippiness and you get funny stuff. But the modern indie books and the, and the movement that that comics have been in the last 30 years, the writing's gotten so much better. It's like TV quality writing that you yeah. get to do a lot with drama. Um, so doing that, and we're we're talking to the artist, Will Conrad, who's nominated for Hugo for doing um, like the Whedonverse stuff, like Buffy and all that. And um, you and I have talked a lot about artists before, and we really like Will because my biggest thing is how well does the artist get their their characters to act. Yeah. And his, he's a traditional style, but his characters are very expressive. And I love expression in comics because it's fun. So hopefully we can get Will. And then if that's the case. I've written the first two issues of that. I'm going to write three more on the contract I'm on. And then if it's successful, I'll probably write more of it because so I have- So you're doing individual issues. Uh, you're going to release those first. So very traditional in terms of 26 pages, 23. Uh, the, it's, we're doing basically the way Image does it because that's the publisher we want to approach. I mean, you did the first half yeah. comic through mm -hmm. Image. So they're a good creator owned. We'll get to keep the rights to it. Um, and so uh, the media rights to it. And so uh, the idea would be to single issue publish the first five issues that that arc and then the way image works is they collect it as a trade paperback yeah. and then they turn around and sell it that way and that's how they make their money. Um, and that's that's the route we want to go but we have to get an artist on board be it will or somebody else and then we'll do the first five pages with the couple of scripts and then we'll talk to publishers that way. We're not going to spend all the money on doing the art for all five books if we don't have a publisher. Have you thought um, about doing Kickstarter? Because so, so yeah. many people have been doing Kickstarter um, successfully with comics, especially if you have a really talented artist. That's that's the thing is that that conversation will be had if we get someone the caliber of Will Conrad or not. I mean, he's got you know big social media following. He's been in the game for a lot of years. He's he's just he's worked for DC, Marvel, everybody. Yeah, a lot of those guys are on contract, so it uh, and and they have work backed up for six months. So that's the thing is we're waiting on him right now schedule wise. So we'll see. But that and that part of that pivot is because I couldn't sell that in Hollywood if it wasn't a comic book first. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like there's it's it's too risk averse. So you, if you want if you got original ideas, you got to go to a different medium. And it's the same reason I'm writing a novel now is because it, if I was to write that on spec, people are like I'm not going to make this 120 million dollar spec giant epic that's not based on anything. No way in hell. So I yeah. have to write it as a book. But at the same time, it's also very deeply satisfying to write something and create something and have it be 
a thing, uh, whether yeah. it's a book or a comic book. And, you know, sure, if it turns into a movie, that's great. But I've, you know, when I wrote uh, The Looking Glass Wars, I was like, okay, if this could just be a book, and certainly the first comic, um, you know, will people even look at this? And I had, once I got, to your point, once I got Ben Templesmith, I thought, oh, people will see it, want to check it out because of Ben Templesmith. So it doesn't, it's, it's similar to Hollywood, but the, the thing that was, that I realized that was so satisfying is, no matter what happened, I haven't made anything out of the Looking Glass Wars. It's been 20 years. And yeah. I don't care. I love the world and the sandbox I play in every day. And that's that's kind of the thing for me is for the first time with the book, especially, it's just going to be me and the audience. You know what I mean? I mean, I have to get a publisher in place and all that kind of stuff. And that's the stage I'm at now with my reps. I'm putting the submission together. I've written the first 20,000 words, the first uh, five chapters, and there's a prologue. And, you know, I've had the pros of evaluated it walks and talks like a book it's done pretty well uh, in terms of like the the, the quality of the, of the writing but the thing that i'm excited about is it's not going to take 150 people and 600 million dollars like six episodes of television it's not going to take you know not even the input costs of of a graphic novel because people don't realize how expensive it can be to get the art done you know i just um i just wrote a blog today about um my editor and in the editor that i had that i met 20 years ago uh, uh, the year before Egmont in the UK published my book. And I was really struck by her editorial letter, which was incredibly extensive. Like, I'm telling you, she called herself the, uh, she had the pruning pencil, the pruning pencil. And she, I mean, of all 358 pages, she had something on all of them. So it was completely daunting. And whenever I go to schools, I show some of the pages so yeah. that the, the and it's the only time the English teachers get very excited because I'm like, look at all of those little red comments are bad news for me. But here's the thing about that is it goes back to that unicorn thing with me is like, I assumed that the words that I read when I read Frank Herbert's Dune what came from his mouth to the page. You know what I mean? Like you don't think about the role that an editor has to get that there. And so that gave me confidence where I was like, oh, I don't have to be perfect. You know yeah, what I mean? But, but, you know, you're talking, a you know, Frank Herbert. I mean, basically yeah. all people named Frank that write are pretty natural and don't have to work that hard at it. It's just all kind of people happened. named Curtis are donkeys. I get it. <laughs> uh, no, I, but it's, but you know what I'm saying? Like the editor, that was important yeah. to me. The so, thought that so, I have somebody in my camp that's it's and by the way, their job, they're not trying to do what writers do when they read, which is, oh, this is what I would have done. They're trying to make it work. Well, here's what she said. She said, this is your book. And if you don't want to take this on, don't take this on. These are really suggestions. But she was so smart in giving me ownership at the same time having great um, editorial advice and ideas, but never losing the thread that this is your, this yeah. is your book. And because it's she, way than, it's way different than Hollywood though. Where yeah, well, it's completely different, which is the whole point is which yeah, yeah. what I'm saying is which, so it's not just about, Oh, I'm going to write a book so I can get a $150 million movie made. It's I'm writing a book because it's amazing experience and it's mine. And no matter whatever happens, I it's it comes from my mind and my imagination and my God if what you just said of your twenty thousand words that it walks and talks like a book if that is true and it translates what was in your head to the reader and the reader tells you that will blow your mind because that's what happened with me and then yeah, they I'm dressed up as characters and then they got tattoos and you're like <laughs> okay how the fuck did that happen. I have one character in here that if anybody gets a tattoo, I know exactly who it'll be, but I can't spoil that character because he's, he's fun. But yeah, I, I, I agree with everything you're saying. It's like, it's, it's, it's the most fun writing in some ways that I've, I've ever had because I'm not really thinking about anyone other than myself. Whereas yeah. when, you're, when yeah. you're writing for a comic, you're thinking of the artist. When you're, writing for, when you're writing for television or film, you're thinking about the executives and a million other yeah, things you don't yeah. want to be thinking about, but you have to. Um, and so this is, in a weird way, I had this discussion with my friend Brian Hansen, who's a, he's got an MFA and he's directed movies and all this kind of stuff. And a great guy. And I was like, I actually, unpopular opinion, I actually think prose is easier than screenwriting. And he was like, you're out of your mind. And I was like, no, here's the thing is, you get to do all the jobs. You're sound design. You're the actor. You're the director. You're the writer. You get to do, you get to write to all the senses. Like the issue with screenwriting 
is people overwrite way too much because they're not used to the economy of words. It puts you in a box. It was liberating to do prose. Now, I'm not saying I'm great at it, but I had a great time doing it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's because I, there's no, and also the way you can get yourself out of trouble and make scenes work is so much different because you have their thoughts. Whereas with, you know, a screenplay, absolutely not. And then unless you're doing voiceover and if in a comic book, we don't do thought bubbles that much anymore. Yeah. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's just, it's a different experience. Well, and, uh, as you said earlier, all three are very different and all three require a different skill set. And I would imagine that when you finish this book and you're on your fourth book, you'll look back at that book and go, wow, I could have done such a better job because I certainly feel that way still. So, um, you know, you just, you're in the moment, you have the skill set that you have, you have the imaginative power that you have, you create the thing, you put it out there and you hope, you know, you hope people, you know, receive it in the way that, you know, you were, that you came up with it. This one, just so I can say it out loud, because that's what I'm supposed to do on these things, right? It's called Paragons, but I don't know when it'll come out. And you've written 20,000 pages and tell us, is it YA? Is it adult? It's, it's, it's the, the, the older end of YA. So it's, it's like the, it's like the, as young as 14, as old as like 17. Okay. So it's definitely YA. And how many pages? What what are you thinking? uh, Word count? It'll probably be close to a hundred thousand words. Um, I know that a lot of YA is like 80, but a lot of science fiction fantasy, you, you tax them on there because of the world building. So I'm shooting for somewhere between 80 and a hundred. I say 80 is a very good mark, um, just heads up, but you know. I mean, but I've also like, we had a conversation about this book. One of the times we caught up, I think like maybe during COVID or something like that. And, you know, I still take some of the things you said to me and have built them into how I'm building the world in terms of like the age of the protagonists and things like that. And, and making sure that all of the good stuff, quote, all of the good stuff is in the first book, meaning like you only get one chance to hook them. So I'm trying to be as aware as I can be from a, a seasoned writer's perspective and knowing what I know in Hollywood. But to your point, this is the first time I've done this, so we'll see how yeah, it goes. Yeah, and it, it really, it you know, it, it really falls. I mean, it really falls on the prose because you know, with a with a script, you can have somebody rewrite it. With comics, you know, the art can be the thing that shines, and and people will buy it. Um, but with prose, it's absolutely the words on the page. So I mean, I wrote a test chapter because I was like concerned if I could even do it. I, was I did full- that. You did? Huh? I did that too. Yeah, I did. I was having a full-blown imposter syndrome because again, screenwriting, that's what yeah. I've done. You know, that's yeah. that's the thing I've done and that translates pretty easily to, to comic books, but yeah. prose is a different animal. And so I did the first chapter and the feedback was, what's going to happen next? I was ah. like, well, that's a sign that I should write what happened next. Oh, that's and that's kind of how it started. You know? yeah. That's very funny because in my, um, in my blog, my editor, she was saying to me that, oh, Frank, you've really, you've clearly done all of the research and you clearly have this whole world in your head. You clearly know what their backstory is, but the writer, the readers don't really care. They only want to know about what happens next. (laughs) And I was like, okay, all right. That one stings a little bit. That was kind of like that City of Gods pilot that I wrote. There was so much like, check out all this cool shit in this world that I'm going to do. And then it was like, hey, man, that's exposition to a degree. Like, you don't tell them that to get to that that place that you need to tell them. Yeah, but I don't know. I thought that was a really cool world. So, you know, you might want to revisit that. You know, I've I've thought about it, but the thing that I got was like, oh, Greek mythology is a little dusty. You know, that's the word they like to say where it's like, well, it's it's been around the been around so long. And then, you know, next thing you know, um, I'm forgetting his name right now. The guy who does Rick and Morty, uh, Dan Harmon, is doing like a Greek gods adult yeah, comedy. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, oh, it, dusty it, comedy, huh? Yeah, it depends on who's who's uh, writing it. When Frank Scott did um, the Queen's Gambit and started with the the young girl version for the entire pilot and then, you know, cut to the star for the second episode. It was like a revelation. Oh, you can do that. I'm going right. to revisit the looking glass wars. Right. Meanwhile, Alice starts when she's like, you know, a kid and then she becomes a teenager in the part two of that. Yeah, no, it tracks. I mean, it's, I don't know, but the, but the one thing I'll say about the, the transition from screenwriting to prose that I do think is somewhat beneficial. Cause this is, you were the one who sent me hunger games mm-hmm. and Susan Collins is a screenwriter and every single one of those chapters, cliffhanger like hell. Great. Fantastic. Right. So the pacing of that is like, and so of course you just find the, the reader just finds themselves reading the next chapter. Yeah. The next thing you know, I read the book in three days. Anytime someone tells you, oh, I read this book in three days, you think, oh, that's good. And so some of that is baked into 
or I'm trying to, and hopefully it's successful baking that into my style where it's like, because of my screenwriting background, yeah. it's cinematic, it's paced, it's got cliffhangers. If the prose is good enough, we'll find out, but it does yeah. have some of those things. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that people describe my book, the people that liked it anyway, uh, some people did not, um, but uh, th that very cinematic and that the page turner uh, quality of it, uh, which was really important and which is something I focused on because, you know, you know, when you're with middle grade kids or, you know, young adults, uh, certainly now that I have them, I, I see even more how important it is to engage them, but that it continues and they, they feel that, um, you know, they, they need to know what happens next. What happens yeah. next, Dad? So I'm, my my biggest concern with what I'm doing with this book is just that I may have aged it up too much, and so that's that's well, I'll be curious to see what happens when we go to publishers if they say, "Hey, this is this is it's written a little too old." Like that's you know what I mean. Not that it's written at like a it's written around like a seventh grade reading level, which is kind of the target reading level for for casual prose, but just that like it's it's written like it's coming from the mind of like an adult too much I'm, I'm a little worried about that part of it that's the part where i'm like ah, am i going to actually appeal to those readers or not like ya readers because if i can't then i'm in trouble well yeah you're going there i mean they're gonna it depends on the vocabulary that uh you're that you're choosing but um you know it's not knowable until you put it out there so i i, I you know i didn't know that there was children's publishers ya publishers middle grade publishers which is why if i had known that i wouldn't have had a seven-year-old a 13 year old and a 18 year old and the same damn book but it was the way that I saw the story so I just thought I just I just wrote it and then and you know I got passed on all over the place until until Callie came along yeah, but then you became a New York Times bestseller so I guess it proves you correct thanks to um, my thanks to my editor but um so uh I was reading in your bio and now that folks know where you're from this this uh, phraseology will make sense that you spent your youth spun up in a tornado of uh, comics, novels, films, television, and games. So in terms of your style of writing, in terms of your choices of stories to tell, what were your like top influences, whether they were creators or the work that they created? You mean, because there's, there's obviously like a lot of games that I play, but you're talking more like from literature, right? Like comics no, and books. No, actually, I think the game part of it is really, really important and interesting. And when we started this conversation, it felt like you were deeply seated in games and interacting with your friends and creating, starting your early seeds of creation through those game plays. I mean, I, I think I've read somewhere that I know that you're a big fan of Dune and yeah. and in Ender Games, right? Ender's game, yeah. And and um, and I think you said you you write a, you wrote a, you read a lot of fantasy, like Philip K. Dick and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, I read tons of sci-fi and fantasy. So like you know uh, Ray Bradbury, and uh, you know I read Dune and um, Neuromancer, and you know uh, in fantasy I read you know a bunch of like D and D novels and things like that, and Magic the Gathering novels. And so, you know, I've read Asimov and Philip K. Dick and like all the kind of things that you would expect to write. I, I really like the or read. I really like this series called the Cold Fire Trilogy by C.S. Friedman. Um, that was a, a different take on fantasy because it was like human beings landed on another planet and our technology didn't work. So we were forced to go back to like a feudal situation and there happened to be like this fey mana there. And I like that kind of setup. So those books really inspired me. But I read those when I was like a teenager. I was doing this stuff when I was five. You know what I mean? Wow. So I was, I mean, am I, I have an older cousin uh, named Travis, he's got a twin brother named Rob. And like, they took me on an AD&D campaign at our cottage at Fife Lake, Michigan. I was like eight years old. I had to beg him to do it. But it was like, you know, it was like amazing. I was like, couldn't believe I got to make a character and they were in the story. My cousin was the one telling me the story. And so I think that John August, the the, the writer has the the John August blog. He does the, the, the podcast with Craig Mazin. And I think somewhere at some point, I'm probably butchering this, but he, someone asked him about like, oh, my, my kid is interested in, in writing, like how, what should I, what should I do? Like, what's the best thing I could do? And his answer was like, I haven't played Dungeons and Dragons because <laughs> you are in charge of the story. Yeah. It's interactive and it's also social. So your kid's not like alone, you know, all the time they're, they're seeing, they have an audience in front of them to interact with. And so I played this, you know, I played Dungeons and Dragons. I played Vampire the Masquerade. I played Werewolf the Apocalypse. I played Shadowrun, which is one of my personal, the second Shadow version Run, of that game right. is one of my personal favorites. I played other fantasy games like Harp. 
Um, and then Magic the Gathering, which is a little bit like the Looking Glass Wars because Magic the Gathering has elements of fantasy, elements of science fiction, elements of steampunk, elements of cyberpunk. Um, it's, it's big, broad worlds. It goes between different planes of existence. And so those were really like the big influences. And then in terms of comics, I grew up reading my older brother Peter's comics, and that was, God, did I get lucky, that was the Chris Claremont X-Men run which is the the Dark Phoenix saga and the Morlocks and all this kind of stuff. It's, it's really when the X-Men became Charles Xavier is um, Martin Luther King and, uh, and Magneto is uh, Malcolm X. Like that's kind of the equation for them. And then the mutants were oppressed. And so I got to read a bunch of that stuff, which really affected me. And these zany book like uh, Grew the Wanderer and the Marvel What The Books. And um, I read a bunch of really bad comics in the 90s. 90s were not a great time for, for, for comics uh, to a degree. Um, and that's that's where it all came from. It was all I was on the farm alone, needed to go do some stuff. And then when I was with people, we were also doing story stuff. So a serious n- nerdum coming out of uh, coming out of farm life in uh, Michigan where you got inspired because, you know, honestly, I don't think I've I mean, I didn't know that they had Magic of the Gathering novels, or if I probably have seen them at Comic-Con and uh, Dungeons and Dragon novels, but you're comparing those novels, or you were reading those with some of the great sci-fi writers of history. <laughs> I mean, so, I'm, not, I'm not equating this being as good. I'm just saying- No, like, but, I read, I mean, but you can go them. back and forth. So, yeah. you know, that, that, that's a love of it. That's a love of the world creation aspect of it. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, it's there. There's there's some great stories out there that you know, like the Final Fantasy VII has this storyline that follows this character named Cloud Strife and this bad guy named Sephiroth, and uh, I think I said that correctly. It's been a while, but um, but it's it's this really crazy epic about like cloning and all of this kind of stuff. And when I was playing that game when I was like 10, 11 years old, whatever it was, you know, that was like I've never seen this shit before. And right. It was like, it's like, even though maybe there was a better version of that story somewhere else, it got to me through games. Right. You know. What I mean? And so then you seek out maybe a better version of it or, you know, or, or you look at like all the stuff that's being made in television now and you can see all of these people were influenced by their childhoods in yeah. the 80s and 90s. Yeah. You know what I mean? And some of that is through gaming. I mean, look at how successful gaming movies have become now. Yeah. You know, well, finally, so- there's writers that understand how gamers see the worlds that they interact with and the gamification. They're finding ways they- to... And they made the Lego movie in the 90s, Barbie in the 90s. They made Super Mario Brothers in the 90s, and it was ridiculous. And apparently the actors were drunk the entire time because the script was so bad. So, like, it took a while for the industry to take those stories seriously. But honestly, moving forward, it's going to be a huge part of, of, of movies because the gaming industry makes more money than movies do. You know, I mean, video games do. They're billion-dollar IPs. Which is why I think Netflix is trying to get into the game business and yeah. and probably Amazon as well. But it's a different animal. I think they have a hard time. Again, it comes down to creators who have unique visions. I got to give it to Warner Brothers and um, uh, Mattel for, you know, creating Barbie and letting Gerda run with that thing and making it her own and, and transforming the business. It's pretty remarkable to have that movie and Oppenheimer. It's great because, well, the thing about Oppenheimer is like, you have to go see Christopher Nolan movies because, you know, he's writer director and a lot of that stuff's original. I know Oppenheimer's based off of that, but like, you know, I'll go see Inception. I'll go see any of these Christopher Nolan movies because it's creator owned. You know what I mean? It's his original idea. But with Barbie, what a bet. Like what an absolute like set of something on that executive (laughs) to do. Uh, And now hopefully they realize like, not a bad way to do it. I mean, look at Lord and Miller, though. I mean, I think they were probably the only ones who had that take for the Lego movie. You yeah. Know what I mean, where at the end you find out it's the kid who's playing with the dad's Legos that were glued. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. just like, we all know that from when we were kids. Holy shit, you're telling me that's what's been going on the entire time? This has been a kid's mind? I've watched my son, who's five years old, play, and it's basically the Lego movie. Oh, well, this is doing this, and I made this guy into a monster, and yada, yada, yada. It's like, oh shit, they, that's the smartest take you ever could have had on that movie. Right. You know? Yeah. It was that, perfect. It was genius. Uh, yeah. I love the new Spider-Man's in the, Into the Spider-Verse, those two movies as well. Those were expanding the Spider-Verse was, was really inspiring. Um, and, you know, that's sort of something I wanted to just touch on a little bit because I'm looking to 
refresh and reset the Looking Glass Wars. And we've had a lot of conversations about, we had a lot of conversations about time travel and how time travel could play itself in this world. And I, I had kind of a, uh, a template for the stories that I wanted to create first. And then the last two were with you with uh, Crossfire and Underfire. And now that there's been a few years, I've started thinking about, you know, time travel and the, the multiple dimensions and the multiverse and how I might be able to reintroduce Hatter through a portal that's not just into the time that he's living, but fractures off into different times, different storylines. Um, and I'm, I think about this in terms of a new graphic novel series, which we can talk about, you know, after we do this podcast. But um, I'm, I'm curious in terms of time sh- travel shows, time travel theory, uh, time travel um, tropes, and how do you how do you see time travel in fiction in graphic novels or movies um i know that you did some work on some ideas that i we had talked kicked around and i liked i liked some of the things concepts you came up with but what is your take on the way to use time travel to the most you know beneficial and effective way in storytelling the answer is very carefully because it's an absolute can of worms and it can do something to the stakes which you see in the marvel movies and things like that now where suddenly what really matters Mm -hmm. so you have to you have to you have to create a set of rules in my opinion when you do time travel you have to create a set of rules that don't undermine your stakes and you have to create a set of rules that when you're done with time travel you're done with time travel Mm -hmm. because it's always there nothing matters and so you have to create i guess this is a pun like a moment in time in your world. But if you, and it can be for 10, 15 years, whatever it is, but you have to know before you start how you're going to button it up correctly because nothing is worse than when time travel comes in. I'm not going to use this correctly, but like it's, I'm not trying to say jump the shark, but it kind of does that. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like it, it, it can do a thing. Now, if done correctly, it's great. Like my favorite time travel thing is in Looper when oh. Bruce is talking to, to uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. He's like, I don't want to talk about fucking time travel. We're about here with abacuses and whiteboards. And like, that's the whole point. It's like the second you start to explain time travel, some nerd like me will be like, mm, I don't think so. <laughs> this actually doesn't work because of this, this, and this. And like, this is contradictory. Like, that's what's going to happen. And so you need to use it in a fun way where it's like, hey, we're doing time travel, okay? And, and do it in a way where it's like, we're not doing this for forever. And the things that you've watched before this still matter, but we're doing time travel. Right. Like, it's it, otherwise it, it's just like like i remember i was watching westworld we watched the first season of westworld and like they just kept killing these people and they kept coming back and i was like well why do we even care you know and it's the same thing with the, the 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 reason why they finally have stopped bringing Jean gray back for a while in the x-men is like yeah it was like she's gonna die but it doesn't matter she's just gonna come back and so you know it's like a soap opera that way um or oh so so and so was resurrected by a ghoul or something like that so it's you have to be really really careful with the way you do it because your audience deserves to the deserves that the things they read before still matter. Yeah, which is why I like um, Quantum Leap in terms of that show or, you know, Doctor Who, 12 Monkeys. Uh, I think all three of those did a really good job um, in terms of using the time travel device to keep the stakes fresh and and allow an expansion of the story and a continuation. Um, and then it's about how clever are you inside of the device of the time travel. So, and you came up with a lot of interesting ideas in terms of, we were working on a, a, a book. I was thinking about a fourth book and I think we called it lost in time and you had timekeepers and, and, um, oh, yeah. you remember that? The time stream and the time current. Y- yeah. And you, like all yeah, this. yeah. That was, it was just, like, it was, yeah, it was cool. Like the idea was, I think it was a little bit like pulling from like the white rabbit and stuff like that out of stopwatch. The idea is that like earth was one gear and Wonderland was another gear. Yeah. And we're thinking about maybe making a third plane of existence. It could be another gear and that, you know, time could be wound up and time could be wound back and that kind of thing. But are the realms all in sync that way? And we didn't have hard rules for it. You know, we, it was just something we're talking about. I think the, those yeah. outlines that we worked on were only, you know, maybe a page for each book, real broad stuff, you know, real 
beady broad i've also i've also been thinking a lot about um wonderland and how wonderland has always represented victorian england but why is that why can't there be a wonderland version for asia or for china or for every country that um so you know you find yourself being given its imagination and imagination is the power and you're trans transferring it transporting it to other people you know so you create based on you know chinese myth and lore a wonderland version and so you could travel to the time in history there and find a connection to that alice that version of alice in wonderland so that it's not just time it's also um, here's my here's my pitch for you okay Looking Glass Wars, fractured fantasy, <laughs> something like that. Like I, I get what you're saying, though. It's it is very cool that way. They do the, Magic: The Gathering does a little bit of that with the planes of existence that are there, because there's these planeswalker characters that exist across all the planes. But you're suggesting that there's like a different Alice in each one. It's not Alice going there. It's they have their Alice. They have their Hatter. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's very cool. It's big. It's a very very big idea. Um, well, you just that- take one one little story. Um, and and have our Hatter from Looking Glass Wars interact with who the character of Alice in, let's just, for the sake of argument, say it's China, then you have a completely different cultural lens that you're seeing the story through and a different set of influences uh, and mythologies that you're tapping into. But it still comes down to that character and what that character's journey is and what those stakes are um, and letting Hatter just stick his toe, interact with it, establishing that, that kind of cool concept and then, and then going from there. From an art direction standpoint, that would be tons of fun. I mean, you would have just the imagery would be. Could be cool. Yeah, it'd be really cool. I mean, there's, this is, I mean, a little bit we talk about with like, you know, there's a spider pig and there's, you know, there's the anime version of, of Spider-Man and in, in, in across the Spider-Verse where it's like they, were raised in a different cultural sandbox, but yet they still have like their Uncle Ben origin story or something like that. So in our case, we would still have, you know, probably the the Genevieve red dynamic and, you know, Alice from there, like that kind of thing. Um, it's cool. I mean, it doesn't have to be a big idea, but I'll tell you what, the way that it would be built if it was like a Marvel storyline, like one of their summer blockbusters, you'd have eight issues where all of them collided. Like that. that's what they would build for. And then that would be the the, the them try drive or test running that for like it to be like a storyline in the movies down the road or something like that because like civil war i have it on my shelf they did civil war and then they did the movie version with captain america that's different but that worked really well for them they're going to do house of m at some point all of that stuff and it's really about during the course of the year they have these different parts of the world like you're talking about and then at one time they all slap together and everybody buys the hell out of those comics because they're awesome um yeah, so, so, so the idea would be to to relaunch, you know, thinking about how I could relaunch Hatter and some of the characters that he met in the graphic novel series, fully giving them fully give uh, them their uh, a story arc, and then and then in the future writing stories about just them. Yeah, um, yeah. But, you know, you and I also kicked around in terms of Crossfire, Underfire, and Part 3, uh, you know, putting some of the conflict into the neighboring nations and wonder nations so that there could be, a, you know, a, like a civil war, like a big story arc, um, because not everybody knows how expansive uh, wonder nations is, because I focused on the three trilogies, I mean, the three, tri- the trilogy with um, Wonderland, Wonderland, Borderland, yeah. and, you know, that's it. So we touched on uh, a few others, and so that that could be cool. And then you introduced all of those card soldier characters. By the way, where did you get the inspiration for a couple of those? Um, you have some really great characters in there. Well, we so, talked a little bit about GI Joe, but yeah, but honestly, it's a lot of it is I really viewed it like a game, right? So to me, it's a class system. In Dungeon Dragons, yeah. there's knights, wizards, sorcerers, yeah. rogues, that kind of thing. So we have a pickpocket, we have an explosives expert, like that kind of thing. And then, you know, a lot of times when you're dealing with like a dirty dozen type scenario, 
you know, these people are only going to have, at least for the first story, you know, sort of a dominant personality tick because you're not going to get the underbelly of all of them. So we don't know why Gamble loves explosives. We don't know why Ingalls was in jail. We don't know why the character Rue that didn't make the team was a pit pocket. My, and one of the things that we had talked about before this was like favorite characters that I made for your world. And Ovid is probably the one, but there's this guy named Janish who's like a linguistics expert in the House of Cards. Mm-hmm. Weirdly fascinated by that guy. No idea what he is. He's just a gag, a throwaway gag in the book. And I'm like, what if that guy's the hero of our story? What if that guy is the guy that goes to Morgo- Morgovia and like gets the cultural norms and he's the one who bows correctly and does all that kind of stuff. And he saves the day. Like, what if it's yeah. Ariana? You know, that's funny that you say that because there's uh, two characters in, I think it's the Looking Glass Wars, uh, two Wonderlanders. I don't know if they were milliners. I can't remember. It was so long ago, but they fell into the pool of tears and never to be heard from again. I was like, oh, I should write a story about those. I should Dude, figure- what if they're Ben and Jerry? <laughs> what if they're Ben and Jerry? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, like, where do they get the ideas of ice creams? Well, because they're actually- Yeah, I mean, I, probably the question I get the most is, you know, who's King Arch in our world? And mm. I've never answered that by design. Um, so I get that question a lot. People want to know who from Wonderland's here. So that that's a whole other storyline that would be yeah. really fun to play with. So- I mean, it's it is relatively limitless. I mean, it, it's a massive sandbox. I think that there's a kind of a crushing weight that I'm sure you feel with that, though, because like when you pick a direction, you're it's like it's like turning a, a tanker ship. You know what I mean? Like you really got to know kind of where you're you want to go because one, you've got a fan base, and two, a lot's going to go with it if you want. You can bring all of this story and all of these characters, whether it's time travel, whether it's this civil war that we talked about. I mean, the third book, the Margavia book, I was like trying to find notes on what we were talking about. But essentially what this whole thing is in terms of the dissension with the 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 suits that's happening. in I think we called it the suit wars. We wanted to call it the suit wars, right? So I think the idea is that, you know, we're going to move into this situation where Alice, who's no longer a conjuring queen, has to deal with, um, you know, this this uprising for the first time where she's not, you know, the the queen on the chessboard. She's not all powerful. And then from that becomes what I think is the most interesting either past story or first story that we could do, which is what's it like when the suits aren't united? Right. You know, we've kind of kept them in play because there was a conjuring queen, but ultimately you're left with a really, really awesome geopolitical issue. You have Game of Thrones. You know what I mean? You have you have the Iron Throne, that type of scenario. You know, it's it's um that's that excites yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. So if I think about it from that standpoint, it's so daunting. I, I'm going to implode. So, <laughs> I, 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 that, which is why I'm wanting to expand and I want to invite more people in the sandbox and I want to kind of be the general and help with the direction. But to answer that question, the way to solve that is to get really granular, go really small, get real character, and find the character thread that is an elaborate, that elaborate, you can elaborate on Hatter's journey and what he's going through and maybe his daughter and, and what really was at stake for him, how deeply painful those 13 years of failure were, and see it, feel it, keep it more visceral. A lot of times I feel in the stories I've told or the way that I've told them that they, they're they trying, you know, there's a, there's a big canvas and there's lots of rules and lots of logic that has to get um, dealt with and keeping it moving. And you know, I like those things. I want to, but those are there now. Now I can drop into the touchy feely, personal interior internal stakes, and and find ways to externalize those. Yeah, I mean, you could. There's Hatter specifically. I mean, he is he is sort of the fan favorite, right? That's kind of the the person that you know. He's the he's the action figure you'd, you'd sell the most the most of, um, and he's. He is a really interesting character. He has like samurai qualities. There's an honor to him and all that kind of stuff. But also we often play with this idea of him getting like angry or him losing his mind. You know, like that's mm-hmm. the joke about the Mad Hatter yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. Making his character. Like there's there's a lot, but like, I don't know. I don't, I can't think of like the signature quiet Hatter moments. I guess Weaver, like stuff with her, like that kind of thing. So you could, you could, you could put him into really, put him into, into choices that are not, you know, not, large scale 
life and death type situations if you if you didn't want to. I mean, that's kind of like what we did a little bit with that baseball thing, though. You know, I think I think what I'm saying is um, the reason I like the other these parallel worlds is because if there's another girl, another little girl that he, you know is is a surrogate for him, we he he can be doing some something really good for somebody, but it also boomerangs back because it's what he's not doing for the person he's meant to protect. So, you know, I I love that movie, um, Man on Fire. I love that movie, Man on Fire. And I love how they created, you know, how Dentel's character was so broken. And this little girl put brought him back to life to the full version and 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 i think that's what i'm getting at Uh, um finding finding that in the stories it doesn't have to be the entire story but finding moments like that where he starts to break go mad and somebody for a greater purpose brings him out of it and puts him back on the right path as did he ever reach a point i'm trying to remember now because you know there was the novels and then there was the five graphic novels like did he ever actually give up hope? You know what I mean? Like, did he actually have, like, was there a period of time where he was just like, Alice oh, yeah. is dead and mm-hmm. trying to yeah. remember? Okay. Yeah, but I, I want him to be, I uh, in giving up hope, I want him to be more, a little bit more destructive and have a little bit more vices, human, natural ways of, um, of comforting himself. You know, and also his storyline with his brother, which was not in the novels, is in the graphic novels. And that's also you know, a, a reflection of um, who he is and who he's not and his expectation and his family. And, 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 then, and then there's Genevieve and, and, and Red. So you have a sister story and a brother story. And that should come together at some point and has a little bit in the second um, uh, middle grade book that follows ha- uh, Ghosts in the Hatbox um, because we start to see what broke up the sister's relationship and you see the connective tissue um and that's a really interesting dynamic and and which is why i like this time playing with time and space so that i can tell these multiple stories that i don't have to tell them literal literally not linearly literally jesus hard god um yeah, I mean, it's, it's, so you want, I know you always, always liked, um, the show like Kung Fu, like that kind of thing, or like they're, they're out in the wild, like that kind of thing. You want to tell some, some bottle stories of Hatter, that kind of thing, or do you want to tell uh, something? Yeah, I like that, but, um, I, I don't think I would do it that way. I think I'd do it closer to Witcher. Okay. You know, yeah. where you have multiple stories going on and you're not sure how they're connected. And then over time, you're like, oh, that girl is the adult there and that's how they connect and that's a different time and th- that's the great thing about television and streamers is that the the flexibility is is there to play and yeah. invent and you know with the looking glass wars it's on multiple planes it's m- multiple characters multi-generational so how do i utilize all those really interesting conflict um uh those conflicts between the characters and and give an expansive story but in you know a small bite-sized drama well that's the difficult part is is condensing it down i mean it's it's you have to know kind of where it's placed inside of the broader world then drop into these little these little happenings here yeah i mean i just had thoughts about you know breaking hatter and stuff like that is like what does hatter look like as the antagonist how mm-hmm. does that happen you know, yeah like that's that's a whole like if you put him in another world and there's another, another girl missing and there's another hatter is there a world where our hatter becomes the bad guy because he's so broken you know what i mean Possible. like that's interesting well cer- certainly that happens when he meets his brother and his brother is a reflection of that his brother is that character so yeah. speaking um, of all these other characters whatever happened with I don't know if I can even, uh, I was, my, my instinct was to spell this to you. Like, like my kids are listening for some reason, but it, it, whatever happened with Helia? Oh, Helia. Oh, that's a very good, that's a very good question. I don't want to tell the audience who she is if they don't know. I'm trying to think of what they know. Well, they the, were, the audience doesn't know because it's a, it's a book that was not released and it's a story that hasn't come out. Um, and so uh, I, I'm not opposed to talking about it. Basically, and that has a big time travel aspect of it uh, as well, because basically it turns out that Red had a child 
that she thought she had lost in childbirth that we are going to meet at 18. She does not know she's the heir to Red and that if Hatter and or Alice had never come back, she would be the heir and she would be ruling Wonderland. Um, and at the same time that's happening, she's starting to come into these powers. Um, and so it's her, it's her story of figuring out how can she send somebody back in time to kill or trap Hatter and Alice in our world. So the outcome of her life will be different. It's, it's the Terminator. She's, she's it's trying the to Terminator. Start, yeah. So yeah, start counter this whole thing. So, uh, yeah. So, you know, I just didn't know, I didn't know what the fate of that was. Cause we worked on some of the time travel stuff had her and this villain we created, I think his name was Junius or something like that. Like there was some of that stuff, but I, I think I read a book. Yeah, no, I read, I finished the book. Um, yeah. and I've been trying to decide, you know, what to do with it. There's a lot of rewriting that has to go on. So, um, but yeah, it's, it's a cool idea. I mean, you're taking a, She's a great character. Antagonist uh, and turning her into a protagonist by the end. Or at least you're showing the evolution and the reason why a character turns. Well, she has one of those great antagonistic motivations where it's like, in her mind, she believes she's right. And to a degree. She is yeah. right. She is right. Um, so you know, her mother was no, not a good person, but, you know, everybody's the hero of their own story and she's the hero of her own story. So, OK, so, real. Curtis, thanks a lot for, you know, divulging and forcing me to divulge a storyline that I've been sitting on for a very long time. But because I haven't been rewriting it, you, 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 you know, you did me. This a, is me, George R. R. Martin, you like get on it, Frank. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which, by the way, you get to edit this. So whatever. If this makes the cut, then, then yeah. you wanted it yeah, to. Like, now, now they're true. inside your mind. That's You're just going to make me look bad in the edit now because I brought yeah. this out. Well, I'm definitely going to do that. Uh, <laughs> no, it's going to be hard. This, be has hard been, this has been this has been really really fun. So tell what me uh, tell me what you hope to do next. Um, obviously, I hear they're talking on the CEOs are talking and and Netflix is getting involved trying to resolve this strike. So fingers crossed that we'll be out there pitching and and complaining about um, executives, uh, but, you know, making stuff happen. Uh, in the meanwhile, I'm going to be working on some graphic novels. I know you are. Um, are you writing any television specs or pilots to, like, be ready for when the strike's over? I'm not. I'm focusing on the non-Hollywood stuff right now. I have four Hollywood projects that are all going to go back live again. So I have a, an adult animated uh, comedy called Down Here that I have with this company called Mind Show. That was the one I was pitching to Amazon the day the strike happened. Okay. We'll finish up all those pitches. I have the the uh, hour-long drama uh, set within the alt-right. I, I have a Hallmark Christmas pitch. I oh. never thought I'd say that. But it doesn't have to be Hallmark. It could actually be uh, I won't pitch it here, but it's 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 a fun idea. But Hallmark and, is great because you know they produce a lot of movies. I have a lot of friends who you know they go in for the you know for the quick paycheck and there's a quick turnaround. They have a they have a you know a, a set what do you call it? They you know kind of template for what they want. If it's a holiday an movie, they do a lot of holiday movies. So that that makes sense. I mean, you got two kids, dude. I know. Well, that's the other thing is I got you know got to work so. Uh, that and then I have the the crime drama as well, which we were already talking to investors and distributors with that to try to shoot back in Michigan. So I have all that stuff going on, but also the industry is so upside down right now. Yeah, that I don't really want to invest my time on something like that until I know what I'm looking at. So it's Ender's. It's it's the graphic novel that um, hopefully will have packaged up and ready to go to publishers with the artist in tow, and I'll finish the other three remaining scripts. Uh, that'll be on, on the front burner. And then also the novel Paragons as well. Okay. Um, I have a, there's a, a kid's show that, um, because I have children, I think everybody tries their hand at a kid's show once mm. they have kids. Uh, I have a kid's show that I want to work on. I'm going to maybe work on with, with, uh, best man of my wedding, this guy, Zach Webb. Um, so, you know, that, that as well for more of the Hollywood side of things, but I want to try my hand at some of the non-Hollywood stuff just because Hollywood is frustrating. It's yeah. hard. Yeah. Well, like I said, you can, you know, this stuff can, you can, you can actually get it produced and it's a thing and you can share it and it's deeply satisfying. And so it's, um, I find it really interesting, your, your childhood and how deeply seated your 
childhood and your experience in pop culture and how you've turned that into a job. I think I think a lot of folks who are artistic, whether it's, you know, drawing or writing and like, you know, they're like your dad, like you'll be back in two weeks. How do I make a living? And there's so many ways ultimately to make a living. And and a lot of what this podcast has to say is is um, is about that. And when I say all things Alice, I think now is sort of it's all things imagination. And Alice is a muse for all of us, many of us, and in some way or another. And if it's not, it's the it's the curiosity and imagination that came out of Lewis Carroll to create such a character. And we're all just following, running, hoping to, you know, create our own rabbit hole and uh, our own wonderland. So the thing with Alice in Wonderland is it's, it's, he kind of got there first. And so all the stuff that I was playing with and reading and all that kind of stuff, it's all influenced by Lewis Carroll. It's all influenced by the book from 1865 or whenever it was published, you know, the, the entire fantasy genre, most of the children's genre was all, changed forever by that book. I don't know if he did it first, but he made it popular. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, on that, thank you for coming on again. And we will, uh, we'll talk soon about some of the work stuff that we're doing. Sounds good. I always love playing in the Looking Glass Wars. Thanks for having me, Frank. Yeah, it's a pleasure, man.